Good morning, Forest View. It is good to be seeing you this morning. It's just awesome that we can gather together. Uh, If you're just joining us this week, or maybe you've just been away for the summer and you're just kind of now starting to come back, just want to extend a special welcome to you. And if you're kind of just new and checking us out, we're really excited that you're here. We're a community that exists. Our heart, our mission is to be a community where people meet Jesus and become more like him. That drives everything that we do and everything that we are. So um, we're going to dive into our series this morning. got lots we want to cover. We are smack dab in the middle of our series simply titled The Good Life. And throughout this series, we've been asking questions, what does a good life look like? What, what are the, the different factors that we could look at and evaluate and say, yeah, that's a good life there? And this morning, uh, throughout the series, we've looked at different things like freedom and autonomy. We've talked about obedience. We've talked about identity and how in order to really live the good life that Jesus embodies and invites us into is one to ground our identity in him. And this morning, I simply want to talk about the topic of desire. I think this is a really significant thing to address within our particular culture Everywhere you go, there are different things trying to ignite desire within us. I remember I used to be a youth pastor, and I remember the church I used to be at. Across the street from us was a Tim Hortons. And there was this one day that the Tim Hortons, the sign was under construction. And I remember walking by, and then suddenly after a couple of weeks, the, the sign comes down, or the boards come down, and you see what's there. And it says, Cold Stone Creamery. And for those unfamiliar with that, that is an ice cream place. And I remember a couple of the guys in my youth group, they're like, we got to go check out Coldstone. And essentially the, the strategy there is, I don't believe they're still in Canada anymore, but when they were, uh, the idea was there's like this slab of rock. And what you do is they come in and you pick out your ice creams and they put them all on this rock, which is nice and cold, and they mash stuff into it. So you say, I want some Smarties. And they throw it in and they cut it up and they smash it into there. And then, oh, I want some coffee crisps. And they chop it up and they put it in there. And it's just this They hand you this bowl of just everything you could ever want crammed into it. And I remember the first time going there and and looking at what we had to order, and immediately we start to ask, what are the different sizes? Like, what are our options here? And here is how they classify. Now, it's not a small, medium, large. It's not tall, vente, whatever it is at Starbucks. I always get confused when I go to order. But these these were the orders. Uh, You could order it as A. Go to the next slide. You could get a like it a love it, or a gotta have it. And so immediately you walk in there, and you're placing your order, and you sound like you are some sort of addict, right? Like it's gotta have it. These are our options. Do you like it? Do you love it? Or do you just gotta have it? And yet for so many of us, that is what life is about. It's about all the things that you like, love, and you got to have. And the culture that we live in, so often the story that we're told about what a good life looks like is how many things do you like, do you love, and do you gotta have, and are you able to pursue those things? Uh, this is a line, I, I think this is, we could probably just say this is like the gospel of Grey's Anatomy is this, life is too short to waste it on anything less than what makes you happy. I think I actually stole that from a Grey's Anatomy episode. But I think that this just summarizes our culture, what we believe, what's important to us. Saying so you, you only get one life, Make sure you fill it with as much stuff as you possibly can that makes you happy. What are the things that you desire? And live into those desires. Pursue those desires. Make sure you don't miss out on them. 
And I think for many of us, we live with essentially kind of this rule of life. Go to the next slide. It would simply be this. We'd say, listen to your heart, follow your desires, and don't let anyone stand between you and what you want. In a culture that is often very uncomfortable with the idea of sin and doing things wrong, I mean, the, the one thing that you can, we can probably all agree on, or at least our culture agrees on, is that if you are standing between someone else and their desires, you are a problem. You are doing something wrong. And ultimately, when you get to the end of your life, were you authentic to the desires that you had? Did you live them out? Did you get to experience everything to its fullest? And there isn't really a specific criteria for what you are supposed to follow, what desires you're supposed to pursue. And so it's really up to you. What do you want to do? So you can look at this massive list of all the different things that make our life our lives. Lifestyle, career, friendship, relationships, sex, responsibilities, family, experiences, dreams, pleasure, possessions. And there's not really any rule about which ones you're supposed to pursue. and what. It's just, what does your heart tell you? And so pursue that lifestyle, or maybe it's, oh, it's about that career. I mean, we hear the tragic stories about that guy or that girl who spent their entire life working in that cubicle, but what they really wanted to do was to dance or whatever it is, right? I mean, it's that, oh, it's so sad and heartbreaking because they missed it. They held back. They, they, re, they, they um, didn't really live into everything that they could have been. And we see this in all sorts of different categories. And we can probably name a whole bunch. I just pointed out some with careers. Obviously, sex is very much a part of that. But, but it goes into so many different places as well. It's dreams and possessions. I mean, what is the stuff that's going to make you happy? Invest in those things. Spend money on those things. Give your time and your energy and your passions to those things. Because at the end, you don't want to have missed out. Our culture tells us that the good life is discovered as we live into our desires, as we pursue them, and don't let anyone stand in your way. Now, I think there's something very profound about this. And I, for those of us who are kind of raised in maybe a Christian environment or, or just people who are committed to the way of Jesus, sometimes we hear this language around desires and there's a part of us that goes, that ah, doesn't sound right. There's something that just doesn't sit right in me. Or some of us, we come at it with this judgmental perspective on our culture. It's just they're all about pleasure and it's this hedonistic criticism that we have. And for us, I think it's helpful for us to step back for a few seconds because ultimately where I want to go today is to say that Jesus is not anti-desire, but rather that Jesus is a desire connoisseur. I love this quote from uh, a theologian. His, uh, his name is Ronald Rolfsheiser. I think I said that name right. And he wrote, uh, he's written a number of great books, but one of them I just highly recommend is a book called The Holy Longing. And in this, he essentially begins to talk about spirituality and desire. And this is essentially his thesis. He says that spirituality is ultimately about what we do with our desires. Many of us, we think about spirituality being about kind of this esoteric, kind of this connectedness to something else out there beyond ourselves. And yes, that is completely true. And yet Ronald Rawheiser, he, he summarizes, he just brings it down to this really tangible way. And he just says, spirituality and desire, they go hand in hand. Your spiritual life is about navigating 
and channeling the desires that you have in your life. We might talk about it being like a flame, something that burns within you. Or, or we might talk about it as being like a, uh, as an energy, just this thing that draws you towards something. And so our spirituality, our relationship of God, with God, our desire to follow Jesus is something that gets expressed and explored as we navigate and we channel all of our desires. Theologian and philosopher James K. A. Smith, he puts it a little bit differently. He says this, to be human is to be for something, directed towards something, oriented towards something. To be human is to be on the move, pursuing something after something. We are like existential sharks. We have to move to live. We are not just static containers for ideas. We are dynamic creatures directed toward some end. Essentially, he's saying to desire something, to have a flame inside you burning for something, to have that energy that wells up within you, that's part about being human. And we all have different desires that we are moving towards and drawn towards. In fact, I would argue that often the most despairing moments in our lives are those moments where we feel stuck, when we feel like nothing is worth our energy and our attention, and we have no idea why we're doing what we're doing. But if you want to inspire someone, tap into their desire. Give them an end, a goal, something to work towards. It is amazing to see what people will do in those situations. Now, the thing that James K. Smith would say and Ronald Rollheiser would say, and I would argue that ultimately Jesus says, is that he is not anti-desire. He's not anti our loves. Rather, he says, where are those loves being directed? Because ultimately, to be human is to be all about love. It can be love for God, love for other people, love for possessions, love for experiences, love for reputation. We can go through a massive list, but it's all about love. Look at Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 22. Jesus says this. Actually, at first, a person comes to Jesus and says this. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? So he comes to this Jesus, who's a rabbi, this, this expert teacher, and goes, can you summarize the Torah, the, all the commands, 613 commands of Moses, can you summarize those and give them to me? And here's Jesus' response. He says this. Go to the next slide. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Jesus says the entire point of life is discovered in our love for God and that love being expressed to others. A brilliant theologian who lived a long, long time ago. His name was Augustine. And he writes this in his book, Confessions. He essentially takes on this idea that love is the driving force. This love is, is the most important, significant thing about what makes us human. And he begins to look at the reality of sin and brokenness in our world. And he essentially argues that where that comes out of is not a lack of love in our lives, but rather a misordering or a misprioritizing of those loves. Here's what he writes in Confessions. A just and good person is also a person who has rightly ordered his love so that he does not love what is wrong. 
to love or fail to love what should be loved or to love too much of what should be loved less or to love too little what should be loved more. Go to the next slide. So for Augustine, and I would argue for us, is that we are constantly navigating a life of desires, of our loves. And we are constantly trying to be in this place where is that love in order or is it out of order? Are the things that we are giving our energy, our passions, our desires, our loves to in our actions, in our words, and in our thoughts, are they reflective of the way of Jesus or do they stand in opposition to him and to his kingdom? If you've got a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to spend some time there this morning. And my invitation, I just want to read this to you, and then we're going to look through this story together. So the story begins this. Then Jesus, and and should say, uh, last week we looked at Jesus' baptism, and he comes up out of the water, and this this Holy Spirit descends, or the dove descends, and, and you hear God speak, and he says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And so immediately this ends, and Jesus it heads off into the wilderness. And so I want to read this to you now. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and angels came and attended to him. All right, there's a lot going on in this story, so I just want to walk through it. And there's, this is not the be-all, end-all of exactly just breaking down this passage, but I think there's some important things that we can tease out of this, that we can understand from it, that speak to our relationship with our desires. And so here we have the Holy Spirit. It leads Jesus into the wilderness, this barren, difficult hard place, far from being comfortable, and there he is tempted by the devil. And while he's out there, he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and we're told that he was hungry. And so here we have Jesus, the Son of God, experiencing the very human desire of hunger. And it's here where he is met by the devil or the Satan or the tempter. And so Jesus is hungry. It's been a long time without eating. And so the immediate response from Satan is this. The tempter came to him and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Now for some of us, we immediately get to this question 
if you're the son of God, and we immediately think second person of the Trinity, uh, immediately you might start thinking like Nicene Creed, begotten, not made, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, like all these big, heavy theological categories. And while that's certainly who Jesus is, this term, the son of God, is also helpful to understand in light of Jesus's calling as the Messiah, as the one who has come to liberate and set Israel free. Essentially, it's present within him is going to be the reign of God in their world. So, so think less out there theological, like I can't wrap my head around it kind of person, and think more of the one and true king. And so the tempter comes to him and he says, if you're really the son of God, if you're really the true king, the one that God has anointed who is going to free and set free Israel, tell these stones to become bread. Now, our immediate thought, or at least mine is, is that this is about Jesus' hunger. But notice, he doesn't say, turn this loaf or this rock here into bread. He, he essentially looks at a field of stones and says, turn these stones into bread. This is about more than just meeting Jesus' hunger. Rather, this is a, a shot at Jesus' kingship, saying, hey, if you want to be king, do you know how you get everyone to follow you? You make them bread. Because in Jesus' time, in his part of the world, food was a hard thing to come by. A lot of people lived with a lot of insecurity around the food that they had available to them. And so if you wanted to control people, if you wanted to coerce people, if you wanted to get them to follow you, if you can provide them with a steady stream of food, I mean, they'll be yours forever. And so the temptation here is not just about Jesus' hunger, but is seeing the hunger in the people and saying, Jesus, you can exploit this. You can use this to your benefit. This can be for your kingdom. There's almost a little bit of, Jesus, think about all of the good you can do. Think about all the people you can help. Think about the way that you can set Israel free and you can empower them and they'll follow you and they'll believe you in everything that you do. Just, just win them over with some bread. And then here's Jesus' response. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus speaks back to this temptation, to this desire that he undoubtedly was walking through, which is, yeah, it'd be nice if everyone would follow me. It'd be nice if I could help everyone. But he says this, he's like, I'm not interested in just giving these people bread and winning them over with their, by feeding their stomachs. But rather, I come to give a message to proclaim the work of God, and I want that to be what this kingdom is rooted in and established in. Well, Satan tries again, the, the tempter tries again, and this is what he says, then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So he says, if you're, not, if you're the Messiah, if you're the true king of Israel, you know that God is going to protect you and look after you. He's not going to let anything happen to you. And so the devil takes him to this high point where everyone would be able to see. And he says, jump off 
put on an amazing show, an amazing spectacle. Everyone is going to go, we need to worship this guy. He is clearly the one that God wants. And they will follow you because of the incredible spectacle that you've just put on. And, and Satan or the devil, just, just to make things a little more spicy, he actually quotes scripture at Jesus. And then here's Jesus' response. He says this, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Essentially, Jesus says, Yeah, there's going to be a moment where I am lifted up. Everyone's going to see me for who I am. But it's not going to be rooted in spectacle. It's going to be rooted in a cross. It's going to be rooted in shame and rejection. And it's not going to end with God doing something miraculous and pulling me down off the cross and saving everything. Rather, it's going to be one where my love and my calling and my mission leads me to suffer and ultimately to die. Satan tries one more time. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Essentially saying, there's an easier way. You don't have to go the way of the cross. You don't have to go the way of faithfulness to Jesus. We can win them over with their stomachs. We can win them over by putting on a great show and wowing them and impressing them. And they just says this, or, or, or I can just hand all of the control and power over to you and you can just do what you want. You just need to surrender yourself to me just to make yourself about my agenda. I mean, think of all the desires that you have to help people, to save people, to, to see Israel return to what its original calling was, which was to be a light to the world. That can all happen. You just need to bow down and worship me. And Jesus' response is, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended to him. We hear all these temptations, and we know they're coming from the mouth of the devil. And so we know that these things sound bad and terrible. But I can only imagine if we were just to scratch that out or we didn't know that that was who was saying it. And how easily it would be to kind of side along with that and go, yeah, actually, Jesus, you know what? He's making some good points. It doesn't have to be this hard. You don't have to suffer. You, you can be loved and worshipped by everyone, and it can be easy, and it doesn't involve a cross. It doesn't involve faithfulness to your father. It doesn't matter, involve the hard parts of life. It can be so much easier. And think about all of the good that you can do. And yet for Jesus, he is aware of these desires, and he's aware of what Scripture calls him and he's aware of his deep relationship and intimacy that he has with his father. And so he can respond not with, uh, hmm, well, let me think about that, but rather away from me, Satan. And go to the next slide. As I said before, Jesus is not anti-desire. Rather, he is a desire connoisseur. There's a famous Christian philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, and he says this, a saint is someone who can will 
the one thing. Now, what he is saying here, he's not speaking about specifically saints as we would typically think within the Catholic world, uh, uh, Catholic church world, but he's saying this in terms of those who are fully devoted to the way of Jesus. And essentially points to the fact that we are going to be pulled in so many different directions. But he said the saint is the one who can eliminate all those other things and focus in on the thing that truly matters. I would argue that Jesus is our blueprint because he looks at all these different temptations, all these desires, and he's able to see them for what they are, which is I'm not going to compromise. I'm going to be about the business of my father. I'm going to pursue the love that ultimately will lead me to the cross no matter the consequences. He is one who is focused on the one thing. Because here is the truth in our culture that is full of different desires that we're all trying to navigate. The the truth is this, that every choice is a renunciation. You can't do everything. You can't be everything. Every time we make a choice, we are renouncing another choice. In fact, I would say this, every time we make a choice, we are renouncing thousands of other choices. And one of the deepest challenging things within our culture is that we talk about desire as the be-all, end-all goal of our lives. And so it's this thing that we pursue, and yet we live in this world where we have competing desires. There's things that we want and things that we don't want. And we're not really sure about the order. How does our priorities work? How do we make sure we know what's most important? And some of these desires are mutually exclusive. You can't have both. I mean, just think about it. I think that we can intrinsically, we actually get this inside of us. This is a picture of a famous basketball player. His name is LeBron James. Now, he is arguably one of the best basketball players, if not the best basketball player of all time. This is a screenshot from a commercial that he did for McDonald's. Now, a few things you need to know about LeBron James. He spends $1.5 million every year simply on looking after his body. So we're talking about uh, personal trainers, physiotherapists, um, personal chefs. He, he's built like replicant gyms in his house and in the training facility at, the, at, his, work, or at uh, his gyms or at the, the, the basketball courts that he plays at, the stadiums. So that way he has like both access to both and he can have the exact same routine that he wants. He has a cryo chamber that he'll go into that like freezes his body to help it heal faster. Hyperbolic chambers. He he, um, avoids sugars and red meats. He's an incredibly healthy eater and he is still playing at an incredibly high level even though he's a little bit older by basketball years. And he films this commercial for McDonald's. And you see this and you just go, there's no way. There's no way He eats chicken nuggets. Why? Well, because he wills the one thing. He knows that the most important thing for him is about his his performance on the basketball court. It's about maintaining his body in such a way that he can uh, uh, continue to perform at peak levels. And you don't get there by eating at McDonald's. In fact, ironically, all this work that he puts in And his strict diet that he has allows him to have the platform to get paid millions of dollars to do a McDonald's commercial. And so by doing a McDonald's commercial, by actually eating McDonald's, it would probably mean that he wouldn't be able to do McDonald's commercials. I mean, it's just weird, bizarre. Uh, Another thing here, just uh, this is supermodel Heidi Klum. 
doing a, I think it's Carl's Jr., which is a, a fast food chain in the United States. This is her with some sort of, I don't know, monstrosity of a hamburger. Um, I think it weighs approximately 15% of her body weight. There is no way she has become a supermodel by eating at Carl's Jr.'s. Like the cheeseburgers and supermodel. The, the Venn diagram that there's, does not connect. But, but they're able to achieve these things. And you can, you can talk about the superficiality of their careers or whatever it is you want. But the reality is, is they will the one thing. They know what they want. And they are willing to make massive, massive sacrifices. Not because there's anything wrong with cheeseburgers or chicken McNuggets. But because they know the one thing that they want. And yet we find ourselves in our lives, uh, we can go switch to the next slide, uh, just won't leave it on Heidi Klum the entire time, but we, we can walk through this journey, we have to all of this different conflict that we carry within ourselves, it, whether it's career and family, it's like, oh, I want to have a family, but I also want to be really successful in my career, and the hours that it requires to both raise a family or to be in a, a healthy marriage or whatever it is, and trying to figure out how do you get those two things to go together, or, or maybe it's the desire that you have for, for leisure and pleasure and just stuff, materialism, but then you also have a desire, this burning in your heart for justice and, so, and compassion. And so you carry these two things in this tension because you realize that these things that are so enticing and the things that bring you so much pleasure, whether it's the clothes that you wear, the nice new fall wardrobe that you've recently purchased, or whether it's the, the furniture in your home or, or the electronics, and you realize that many of these things are sourced through unjust means. And you're wrestling with, how do I follow my desires? Or maybe it just comes down to having a really meaningful relationship, and then maybe there's this question around sex. I remember uh, a guy in my residence in first year, he uh, was out there often hooking up with different girls night after night. He would go out just about every night, and he was bringing back a different girl uh, frequently. And then he met one girl, and he really liked her, and she wanted to have a relationship with him, and he wanted to have a relationship with her. And I remember him confiding in a bunch of the guys on our floor, and he was torn because he was really enjoying all of the hooking up, but he really liked this girl too. And he wanted to kind of be able to continue with both things, both his freedom to go and be with whoever he wanted to be with, and also to be able to be in a committed relationship with this girl. And as most 21-year-old guys, he thought he could do both, and... Well, the relationship did not last. Ronald Rollheiser puts it this way. Go to the next slide. He says this, The problem is we, will, uh, is we will everything else as well. Thus, we want, to be a, uh, we want to be a saint, but we also want to feel every sensation experienced by sinners. We want to be innocent and pure, but we also want to be experienced and taste all of life. We want to serve the poor and to have a simple lifestyle, but we also want to have all the comforts of the rich. We want to have the depth afforded by solitude, but we also do not want to miss anything. We want to pray, but we also want to watch television, read, talk to friends, and go out. Small wonder, life is often a trying enterprise, and we are often tired and pathologically overextended. I think so many of us are, are burdened with just busyness and we live with this anxiety and just this overwhelmed nature in life because we are trying to fit all of the desires in and we have no gauge for what really matters. 
As I said before, Jesus is constantly driven by love. And as I reflect on Jesus' facing of his desires, of the temptations he experiences in the wilderness, I am brought to, what comes to mind for me is simply the word patient. Go to the next slide. When we describe what love is, there's all sorts of different words that we use for it and all sorts of songs that tell us different things. But the Apostle Paul describes love as being patient. Now, often we think of patient as being willing to wait in a long line or something like that. And while that's certainly true, another word that actually better describes that word patient is simply the word love is long-suffering. Love is about seeing the most important thing and willing to suffer to reach it and to get to it. I mean, here's the truth. Go to the next slide. I would just say this. Jesus refused to accept anything less than the kingdom life revealed in perfect, non-coercive, non-manipulative, non-violent, self-giving, patient, long-suffering, sacrificial love. In Jesus, we discover a love that is willing to wait, which is willing to suffer, which does not chase after what is easiest, but rather chooses what is right. It's in this way that Jesus is not anti-desire. Rather, he is the, the most, as I said, desire connoisseur. He knows what really matters, and he's willing to say, no, I'm not going to settle. I'm not going to compromise because there is something better. I would put it this way. Go to the next slide. We're talking about the good life. We discover the good life as we commit ourselves to learning to love the things Jesus loves and to love the way Jesus loves. And the key word here that I want to focus on is just simply commitment. David Brooks, in his book, The Second Mountain, he has this brilliant definition of commitment. I love it. Just bringing those two things together. He says this, the most complete definition of commitment is this, falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. I mean, what does a structure of commitment look like? Structure of behavior to help you maintain commitment when things get difficult, or when there are other attractive desires that are starting to steal and take your attention. Go to the next slide. We just returning to our list that we had at the start: lifestyle, career, friendship, relationships, sex, responsibilities, family, experiences, dreams, pleasures, possessions. What does a structure of boundaries to help you discover what really matters looks like in that? Maybe for you it's lifestyle. Maybe it's about having accountability people in your life. You're saying, we want, to be, we want to be more generous with our money. We want to be less materialistic with what we have. Uh, maybe it's a close relationship where you just say, if you're going to buy something, if you're going to spend a certain amount of money, you go and you talk to someone else about it and say, hey, is this a good idea? Do, do you think this is in sync with God's heart? By going and buying this, are we actually just settling rather than embracing the incredible life that God created us for? Maybe for you, it's about friendships and relationships. Maybe it's just you constantly hit this place in your life where you're just, I'm ready to move on. Maybe it's in your marriage 
and you're navigating challenges there, and you're just, ah, maybe uh, it's just not really doing it for me anymore. So what do those boundaries and structures look like to help you in the midst of those moments when there seems like there's just other attractive options elsewhere? Our heart throughout this series has not just simply been to be about information, but to give you practices, things that you can work through um, both in your, uh, in your family, uh, in your friendships, and in your relationships with other people. And so for us, we, we have this heartfelt belief that, that spiritual practices are, are incredible things to use in our life to help create boundaries, to teach us and to train us to love the things that Jesus loves and to love the way that Jesus loves. Because it's not just simply about head information, but rather about embodying it in our lives. And we think the best possible place for spiritual practices is always in community. And so if you're a part of our CubComs ministry, which is kind of like our small groups or covenant communities, uh, this year we are inviting people to join. And if you want to get plugged in, please let us know. We're going to have lots more information about that in the next couple weeks. But I simply want to say this, is that our heart for our covenant communities this year is to continue to meet and to study scripture together and to pray together, but also to be journeying through practicing spiritual practices together. And so we've been giving different ones to work through, and we've provided a resource for all of our covenant communities to help give outlines for how to do that and what that can look like. And the spiritual practice that I want to invite our community into today is the spiritual practice of fasting. Now, when I reflect on the Jesus story that we looked at about Jesus facing temptation in the wilderness, there's always been this part of me that thinks, Jesus, fasting 40 days, 40 nights, he's hungry. And I always think like, oh man, it just, it stinks that, that Satan comes and he tempts him. Jesus is in this frail, weakened state just trying to get by. I've always sort of seen it through that light. It's kind of like this experience I had. I remember when I was in junior high, I was part of a church youth group that did this thing called the 30-hour famine, which was run by an organization called World Vision. And the idea is, is that you don't eat for 30 hours and you raise money that goes and helps needy um, organizations or helps the, the needy in other parts of the world. And I remember the youth group, we had this fun night and we were doing all this different stuff, but we were hitting kind of like that, that late time in the night where everyone's just starting to feel hungry. And these two guys showed up not doing the famine um, with like a couple pizzas and they just open them up and they just start eating them and like, hey, do you want some? Here, enjoy. Like just, just to taunt us and to drive us crazy and we're in that weak and frail state, you know? And that's how I often hear this Jesus story facing these temptations, and it wasn't until I was talking to a person who had undergone a uh, pastor friend of mine who had undergone a seven-day fast. And I remember asking him about that experience, and he was sharing it's hard and it was difficult. But he said, I've never felt closer to God. Because as I was fasting, it brought me face to face with my hungers and my desires, and it helped me realize the grip on my heart that they have and the places where I could be set free. And he said, I had this radical encounter and meeting with God throughout this experience as he constantly gave me the strength and the awareness of all these things going on within my heart. And so often now when I hear this story about Jesus fasting in the wilderness and facing his temptation, I realize this is not Jesus at his weakest. This might be Jesus at his strongest or certainly not any weaker than any other time 
He is as close to his father in his 40 days, 40 nights of fasting as he has been at any other time because he has come face to face with his hungers and his desires and he is able to order them rightly and to focus on the ones that really matter and to discard the ones that don't. This morning, we want to transition into communion, which is a weird thing to say after we've just talked about fasting. It's an important reminder for me is that as we follow Jesus, it is much about fasting, but it's also about feasting. The Book of Common Prayer states this, Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep. We have followed too much the devices and desires of our own heart. And so as we come to the communion table today, I invite you to take some time to reflect on your own heart, the desires within you, maybe the desires that have gripped a hold of you, to bring those to God, to receive his forgiveness. Let's take a few minutes to be quiet before God, and uh, we'll take participate in communion in just a few minutes after that.